Welcome to my podcast, Perspectives from a Pomegranate. I'm your host, Lisa Brooks. In my podcast, I'll be sharing experiences with type 1 diabetes, food allergies, navigating healthcare, travel, and life. I'm sharing in the hope of inspiring you to become unstoppable too. So buckle in, it's sure to be a wild ride. Did you know that it is Food Allergy Awareness Week? Well, I didn't either. But for me, that's unusual because it's such a far cry from how my life was and what I was aligned with and affiliated with three years ago, five years ago even. I used to be very involved with food allergies, interested in food allergies. I often posted about food allergies and their impact on my son's life and tried to educate other people about food allergies. So it was a large part of my life. I even volunteered for a short time for Camp Blue Spruce, which was the first overnight food allergy camp in the United States. If you have kids with food allergies, I'd recommend checking out Camp Blue Spruce. Food allergies became such a large part because my son was diagnosed with his first food allergy at three months of age when I was exclusively nursing. I will never forget the day that I nursed him and afterwards he developed hives on his face. I knew in my gut that it was food allergies. And I remember calling our pediatrician and saying, uh, I think my kid just had an allergic reaction. Her response was, well, lots of things can cause hives in kids. Let's see what happens. And they went away. The next day, I nursed my child at 8 in the morning and everything was fine. And then I nursed again around 11 and my child developed hives again. And the only thing that had happened between 8 and 11 in the morning was that I had had a decaf latte with hazelnut syrup. And so immediately I started to run through, okay, what have I consumed that he might be reacting to? And I narrowed it down to the coffee. And I actually have no idea if people are actually allergic to coffee or not. I mean, I suppose in theory it's possible, but I knew milk was definitely a possibility and hazelnut was a possibility. And when I read the label for the hazelnut syrup, it said may contain trace amounts of peanuts in that hazelnut syrup that I was using. Now, you might be wondering what made me look at the labels and what made me think about all of that in the moment. I actually had someone in my life previously who had some very complex food allergies, and I became a skilled detective in trying to understand that and figure out what caused reactions. Those allergies were actually a little bit more obscure, and it was harder to figure out what was causing intermittent full-body hives. But I was definitely familiar with food allergies, and I had an immediate sense that my child was allergic to one of those three things, dairy, hazelnuts, or peanuts. And all I could think was, oh my gosh, I hope it's not a peanut allergy. I don't know why I thought peanut was such a terrible allergen to have to deal with. It turns out dairy's not so fantastic either. We went to an allergist for allergen skin testing, and it turned out my son had a pretty significant dairy allergy. So to continue to nurse, I eliminated all dairy from my diet. Then at six months of age, my son reacted to egg. And I actually think the first reaction happened after I ate an egg in a breakfast sandwich or something and had yolk on my hand. I touched his face and he developed hives where I touched him. We marched back to the allergist and figured out that he now had an egg allergy too. At about a year and a half of age, we were at a play date and he was eating allergen safe crackers that were on a plate with some cashew nut butter. I looked over and his cheeks were red and he had hives forming and his lips were swelling up. We called the on-call pediatrician who said, Well, you can give Benadryl and wait, or if you're more comfortable, you can give Benadryl and sit in the parking lot of the emergency department and see if it gets better. I opted for the ER parking lot, which turned out to be a good thing because by the time we got there, my son was a little bit sluggish, so we wound up in the ER. 
He needed steroid injections and other treatments to reverse the reaction, which by the way, was a pretty terrible reaction. We watched hives progress from his face all the way down his little body to his legs and the skin on his abdomen turned red and swelled up. It looked like what I can only imagine is a chemical burn and blistered and peeled off over time. I understand that that's not super common, but it happened to my child. So in addition to dairy and eggs, our allergist told us to clean out all tree nuts and peanuts from our home. Why other nuts? Because he was an allergic kid who might have other allergies and because of cross-contamination in manufacturing. So for example, peanuts are often processed on shared manufacturing equipment. And although they often get lumped into the nut category, they aren't actually nuts. They're in the legume family with beans. Oh, and in hindsight, by the way, my child should have had epinephrine that day, and I didn't know better. Back then, the guidance was not necessarily to use an EpiPen right away. Shortly, I'll talk about when and why to use an EpiPen, because the guidance has changed since then, and it's really important that people understand the new guidance. I think they actually offered us epinephrine in the ER, but they weren't completely clear that he needed it. And I remember them saying, it might make him feel yucky, but it might speed along the process of recovering from the allergic reaction. And I didn't know as a parent with a kid in the ER in the middle of all this chaos and a child who was screaming and miserable, I chose not to give the EpiPen. But knowing what I know now, I absolutely would have opted for epinephrine in the emergency room. So back then, because I was still nursing, I eliminated all of those things from my diet along with soy and corn. And I don't actually think he had any issues with soy and corn, but he was certainly still reacting to something. It turned out to be pink peppercorns, of all things, which are sometimes found in fancy pepper blends. Pink peppercorns are the only peppercorns that are not true peppercorns. They're berries in the cashew family. And I learned that from an article that I read that was posted by somebody in the food allergy community about a child who had been at Disneyland and had an allergic reaction. So Disneyland is known for working closely with people with food allergies and being supportive of them. This child had a meal prepared by a chef and had a significant allergic reaction. After much digging and understanding, they realized that it had been pink peppercorns, which people who have cashew, pistachio, and or mango allergies tend to cross-react with. So food allergies became a bigger part of our lives. I spent an inordinate amount of time calling food manufacturers, asking about whatever food I wanted to feed my child. You know, I could generally find, do these crackers contain any of these ingredients on the label? But labeling laws allowed for a lot of variability beyond that. Do they potentially have trace ingredients? Are they made on shared equipment with all of these ingredients? What are their manufacturing processes in terms of cleanliness? At one point, I probably had an entire binder of notes. And you might think, well, it would have been just easier to feed whole foods like fruits and veggies and meat. But at some point, fruit and veggies and chicken and beef and turkey get really boring to a toddler. He ate the same foods day in and day out. So we tried to incorporate as many safe foods as we could. And we also wanted to broaden his palate and give him more experiences. And frankly, you know, even a decade ago, we were very fortunate that there were lots of foods that were being made in allergen-friendly or allergen-free ways, and we had a lot of choices. The other thing that was interesting is that gluten-free foods, truly gluten-free foods that are 
manufactured for people with celiac disease tend to have really clean manufacturing processes. So a lot of the foods that were intended for people who needed to be gluten-free also were clean in terms of manufacturing and options for my son. One of the things I didn't realize that I learned through education is that some cured meats like salami use lactic acid starter culture from dairy, but we found one that used non-dairy starter culture. And I had to think about things like, oh, I'm going to get him, you know, deli turkey, but is the slicer clean? And has there been cheese on the slicer? And has there been mortadella on the slicer? And mortadella sometimes, often, but not always, contains pistachios. So I would even go to the deli at random times when it wasn't busy and ask them to clean the slicer for me if I was getting deli meat for my child. And even with all of that, I had all these crazy rules for myself. So I come from a healthcare background. I was always interested in foodborne illness. And so I follow the FDA food recalls. And there are regularly recalls of foods due to mislabeling or cross-contamination. And I don't often see it with the companies that tend to be great for food allergies, but they do happen. I've seen crazy things like, for example, mint chip ice cream recalled because the containers were actually filled with pistachio ice cream by mistake. And honestly, in the chaos of being a mom to a little kid, if I had bought mint chip ice cream, although I wouldn't have been buying mint chip ice cream because my child was allergic to dairy, but if all we had was a pistachio allergy and I bought mint chip ice cream and I saw green ice cream in the container, I might not have thought twice about it and might have accidentally fed my kid pistachio ice cream. So I had my own rules that my son didn't know about. And it's probably better that he didn't know because I wanted him to be as typical of a kid as possible and to have as many normal experiences as he possibly could. But I didn't feed him any new foods when we were not close to home or we were far from medical care. If we were on a road trip, not only did he not eat any new foods, if we were someplace where we didn't have easy access to good pediatric medical care, and I say pediatric because not all urgent care or smaller community facilities are skilled and knowledgeable about pediatric anaphylaxis, or maybe we were someplace where we didn't have a cell phone signal, I would let him eat a box of crackers that were already open and that he had already eaten from, but I wouldn't open a new box of crackers from the same brand and let him eat those in that situation. And whenever we traveled, I knew where the nearest hospital or the nearest emergency facility was. So food allergies dominated my life for a long time. And in trying to figure out what to do about that, we went to several academic centers, major hospitals, and places that are and were well-regarded institutions in healthcare. We had some good experiences and some bad experiences. There was one really very scary anaphylactic reaction during which my son vomited and passed out after eating his maintenance dose of egg which was after we were told by an allergist at an academic facility that my child was no longer allergic to eggs. But that's a story for another day. Suffice it to say, I'm skeptical and I ask a lot of questions and I really think twice about all my decision-making and who I listen to. So after much searching, we found an allergist who I think is a genius from an intelligence perspective. He's got a PhD in biochemistry. He's a board-certified asthma and allergy physician and in my opinion, he's cutting edge. He really understands food allergies, the science of food allergies, what causes food allergies, and how to treat them. He's told me on multiple occasions that given enough time, he could desensitize anyone to any food allergen. Still, even with that, it took me a long time, nearly a year of 
talking with him as well as other healthcare professionals on my team and my son's team to decide whether or not to try something that made sense from a scientific standpoint, but didn't have a lot of great data or evidence. Although I know he'd already helped lots of people and by now I'm sure he's helped hundreds if not thousands of people with food allergies. Suffice it to say, if you know anything about food allergies, some of my son's allergies were off the chart. And what I mean by that is the way they measure food allergies, at least via blood work, is through IgE or immunoglobulin E. IgE is an antibody produced by the immune system. And in this case, it's basically the immune system mistakenly recognizing something as foreign or an invader that isn't. IgE is produced, and when the body encounters that foreign substance again, the IgE travels to the cells and causes an allergic reaction. It's actually kind of the same scientific principle as vaccines. They help the body prepare for future encounters with the disease so it is prepared to fight. Anyway, the counting for IgE stops at 100 in most labs. So the way IgE testing works is they report a number of antibodies to a specific food. And there are multiple levels. The cutoff for likely not being allergic to a food is less than 0.35, so less than one. Now, I think my son was probably a seven on dairy and a 13 on egg or vice versa. And in the 90s on pistachio and over 100 and off the chart on cashew. So we decided to take a cutting edge yet conservative approach to desensitization. I think it's important to understand that desensitization is not necessarily a cure. My goal in all of this was initially to make my child bite proof, meaning that he would be less likely to die from an accidental exposure to trace amounts of these allergens because a product was made on shared equipment or a restaurant messed up in the kitchen and didn't use a clean space on the grill or a clean pan or any other accidental exposure at school or elsewhere. So that was really my goal for desensitization, just to make him bite proof. I didn't really have higher hopes than that for the type of desensitization we were doing, which was sublingual immunotherapy, also referred to as SLID. I opted to do it in a very conservative, very drawn out manner that is atypical for this provider's practice, but won't surprise you that I had my own path as you get to know me and the way I do things. So we did this very long drawn out desensitization protocol using SLID, first to dairy and egg, and then to cashew, pistachio, and pink peppercorn. And my son's results were not only completely unexpected, but perhaps unprecedented. We've actually talked about whether or not my son's cashew desensitization with sublingual immunotherapy only, no other forms of desensitization, could be a case study in the literature. Because even our allergists didn't expect such amazing results. But we have them. My son routinely consumes egg and dairy in a variety of forms. Although he still has some anxiety about eggs themselves and things like a glass of milk. He will eat eggs that are cooked into things like pancakes. But I think it's normal for kids who have been told for a good portion of their life, avoid these foods because they could kill you or they could make you very sick to still have some reasonably understandable anxiety about those foods. But I fed him some pistachios like in a pistachio cookie, like a biscotti. He drinks cashew and pistachio milk every week probably in the neighborhood of between four and eight cashews or pistachios at a time. And this is a kid that honestly, I believe that absolutely would have killed him seven or eight or nine years ago. Now it's not a cure. It definitely requires maintenance. He has to maintain consumption of cashew and pistachio for a long period of time to maintain his tolerance or his desensitization to them. How long? We don't actually know. 
but I am unwilling to take those out of his diet to find out and see if his allergies come back. Absolutely not. At some point, might he be so desensitized that it's curative? Perhaps. As I said, one of the indicators of the severity or likelihood of an allergic reaction is IgE scores. His score for cashew was over 100. Now, we have no idea if it was 101 or 300. We measure it every year when we do annual labs. That IgE score for cashew has come down from over 100. To be honest, I don't really remember where it is now because it's not something I think about, but I have this vague recollection that maybe it's in the 60s or lower. And so that shows that he's not as allergic, if you will, as he was before. So that all feels like tremendous progress and a victory because my kid is safe. I think it's important to say that people with food allergies or people with a history of food allergies often develop new allergies. So my son could always, I suppose, develop a new allergy or relapse. So we will always be, or as he gets older, he will always be someone who carries an EpiPen or some form of epinephrine for a possible allergic reaction. That's the guidance from our allergist, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Now, is it inconvenient to carry an EpiPen? Sure. It, is it, you know, better than the alternative of not having one and having a fatal allergic reaction? Absolutely. But I don't worry about my kid and food on a daily basis anymore. It used to be that when he was little, we'd go to the park and somebody would spill Cheez-Its or some other food on the play structure or down the slide and we'd have to leave. Or some kid would be sitting next to him eating string cheese and have cheese all over their hands and want to play with him and I'd have to remove him. We couldn't spontaneously go to restaurants. I'd call ahead to restaurants and talk to the manager and say, hey, I have a child who has these severe allergies. Can you accommodate us? Can you ensure there won't be any cross-contamination? And there were some places that said yes, but I also appreciated the places that said they weren't comfortable and didn't think they could ensure his safety. We had a very limited repertoire of places that we trusted, and it was still scary, and I still talked to the manager. Always, every time we went, I asked for the general manager or the manager on duty. And the first thing I did was hand them a little card I'd had printed that listed all of my son's allergies and also detailed the precautions he needed, like clean equipment and things like that. All of that was scary and stressful and worrisome all the time. And when he started school and was surrounded by 20-something little kids with dirty food-covered hands, it was worse. I worried a lot about him at school, but fortunately, our allergist helped provide guidance about keeping him safe at school, and we had a school nurse and district that worked collaboratively to ensure his safety. But it took a lot of time and energy and advocacy to make all of that work. And it wasn't always smooth sailing. I can't even tell you how many families we know that have now gone to see our allergist based on our successes. It's probably in the neighborhood of 10 to 15, maybe more people that I've referred to our allergist, and everyone has experienced similar results. People's allergies are getting better. I think there's a lot of hope on that front. And it still makes me sad sometimes when I hear families that just don't realize that there are these other options out there and that they believe that avoidance is still the best strategy. Now, Avoidance is a conservative approach, and it's certainly reasonable. Years ago, I think I read a statistic that the average person with food allergies has an accidental exposure every seven years. So while avoidance is better than nothing, there's a lot being done nationally and in terms of research on food allergies. But the progress in those types of things and the clinical trials is slow. I'm so grateful that we did it. It has opened up so much in terms of freedom. My son goes to birthday parties. He eats whatever he wants. He would never choose something, by the way, that is full of cashews or pistachios. Anything other than that is a free-for-all. When friends say, hey, we're going to dinner. Do you want to join us at this restaurant? We can say, sure, absolutely. We'd love to. I don't think twice about it. 
and I don't worry about what he's eating, at least as it pertains to food allergies. It's been incredibly liberating. That said, it is Food Allergy Awareness Week. And like I said, I don't really perceive myself to be someone active in the food allergy community anymore, although I have my own food allergies that I'm in the midst of desensitization for, so it's still on my radar screen. But my allergies aren't as all-consuming as my son's food allergies were, and we're also doing some desensitization for his very substantial and significant environmental allergies to trees and grasses. I think the estimate is that there might be 32 million people living with food allergies in the United States. A really great resource for food allergy information is what's referred to as FAIR. Their website is foodallergy.org, and they're very reputable. They also have an allergy emergency and anaphylaxis plan for kids for school. And we still use that plan for my son at school. I use theirs because I think it's spectacular, and it tells you exactly when to give epinephrine and when to intervene in other ways. We've used it every year for as long as my child has been in school. One of the other things that I think changed several years ago is the guidance around when to administer epinephrine. My sense is that a lot of these discussions and a lot of the changes in the allergy community evolved from a tragic situation in California where a child ate something that was not properly labeled with their allergen. They were given Benadryl and observed, which frankly was the guidance at the time. That child went into cardiac arrest, at least that's what I remember reading in the news, and by that point, epinephrine was too late to save this child. It was an awful story and very sad and very scary, and I followed the media around it for a long time. I think that was one of those situations that made the allergy community rethink their guidance. The risks of epinephrine are generally pretty small. I think you can have some rapid heart racing and those types of things. I'm clearly not a physician, so my comments should not be taken as medical guidance. You should ask your doctor for specific recommendations. But what I will say is this. I think that people in general here, if you give an EpiPen or epinephrine, go to the hospital. So even for me, until I understood that better, I thought maybe there was something inherently dangerous about epinephrine that warranted going to the hospital. The real reasons for that recommendation include that sometimes a dose of epinephrine isn't enough to stop a reaction, as well as the possibility that there will be a subsequent phase of the reaction or a delayed reaction. I watched a lecture on food allergies several years ago, and there is some subset of allergic reactions that recur once epinephrine wears off and require an additional dose or additional treatment. So the idea is that you give epinephrine and you try to get to medical care in case there's a second wave of an allergic reaction so that you can be monitored for that and you're in good hands in being monitored should that happen. But I think people have misconstrued that to mean that epinephrine is dangerous. So I like to dispel that misinformation because I think it's important too. The allergy community now very strongly recommends that epinephrine be used early for certain symptoms or combinations of symptoms because sometimes the reaction overwhelms the body to the point where epinephrine is no longer able to reverse the reaction. The other thing to know is the reason people are given two EpiPens or two AviQ or whatever brand of epinephrine injector you might have is because of that second reaction. So it's really important to carry two. And while it doesn't happen often, devices fail or someone uses the first dose incorrectly and needs another one. For example, I know of situations in which someone has gone to give an EpiPen to someone else and has accidentally stabbed themselves in the thumb while giving the epinephrine injector because of the chaos involved. If you can imagine when someone is potentially not breathing or in respiratory distress, or you're trying to make an emergency decision and you're not familiar with an epi injector. 
So it's important to have the other one for that reason. Now, I hear often that people can't afford their epinephrine injectors. I know there are generics and other things available, and hopefully there's also some legislation that is making these drugs and other life-sustaining drugs like insulin more available and affordable for people who need them. And some of the manufacturers actually do have coupons or copay assistance programs available. So for example, we use AviQ. If you're not familiar with AviQ, I like it because, well, I was actually working in the pediatric healthcare arena when AviQ came out, and I was an early adopter. The name stands for Audio Visual Q. It's unlike a traditional epi injector in several ways. It's a small square, so it fits into a smaller place like a pocket or a purse or other small places. And it's easy to fit two of them into that smaller place. Although all epinephrine injectors and all epinephrine comes with a temperature range at which it should be stored. So don't let it overheat in your pocket or in the car. But it's more important to have it than worry about that. More importantly than the size of the AviQ injector, they actually talk you through what to do in a reaction. So imagine this in those moments when I know, at least for myself, my son is having an allergic reaction and I'm trying to assess how severe it is. Do I need to call 911? Do I need to give epinephrine? There's so much going on. Maybe my child is vomiting. Maybe my child is lethargic and I'm trying to assess if he's passing out. It's so helpful to have something that talks me through how to use it. I don't remember the exact words, but it says something like, if you need to use this epinephrine injector, remove the red cap, do this, do that, give the injection and hold it in place while we count down. It is an amazing and incredible innovation in epinephrine. And if memory serves me correctly from when it first came out on the market, it was developed by two brothers, one of whom went to engineering school, the other maybe went to medical school, and they wanted to improve things for people with food allergies. And I think this was a significant advancement in a delivery system. So ever since AviQ came on the market, with the exception of times when it wasn't available, that has been our go-to epinephrine injector, and I love it if you can't tell. So if you have commercial insurance, they have a copay assistance program, which makes it affordable for most people. So please don't go without epinephrine. And when I say please, I mean, please, please, please. If you have food allergies or you have a loved one that has food allergies, please make sure that they are carrying epinephrine with them in some form or some fashion. You know, I think I hear so many times from people who have food allergies and I say, oh, do you carry epinephrine? And they say no. And I say why? And Sometimes it's the cost, but the more common thing that I hear from people is, well, I've never had a severe allergic reaction. And it's a common misconception that if you have a mild reaction one time, your subsequent reactions will also be mild. And it's actually not true. The severity of one reaction has no value in predicting subsequent reactions. So you could have a very mild reaction with a little bit of itching or a few hives one time and have a full-blown anaphylactic reaction during your next exposure to that food. And there are situations where unfortunately these things go awry. I mean, as a member of the food allergy community, I know people who have lost their children to food allergies, even to very small exposures like a sip of milk. And it's heartbreaking. And 
there's a local family here. I don't know them personally, although I've read their story. They were on vacation in another country and left their epinephrine injector in the hotel room. And by the time they were able to retrieve it, their child had died. So if you have epinephrine, keep it with you. Because the average person with food allergies, as I said earlier, has an accidental exposure every seven years. Even if you go into a restaurant and you're clear about what you need and you ask for something, human error can be involved. So better to be safe than sorry. Now, I don't profess to be an expert in the treatment of food allergies. I think foodallergy.org or a board-certified asthma and allergy physician are the best places of information for that. But remember, not all doctors are created equally. Ask questions, challenge assumptions. There are a lot of old school allergists who still believe avoidance is the preferred strategy. And frankly, for some people, that might be the choice that feels most comfortable to them. Maybe they're not ready for desensitization or they're waiting for more data and more science, and that's okay. I love a quote from a physician friend who reminded me that even the person who finishes at the bottom of their medical school class is still called doctor. So don't be afraid to seek second or third opinions. Find someone who listens to you and wants to improve your situation. Hopefully I've done something in support of Food Allergy Awareness Week to elevate the topic a little bit, along with providing some resources for helping yourself and loved ones who might struggle with food allergies. I think that the world of food allergies is improving and there's lots of reason to be hopeful. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and be sure to subscribe.